Section 8 of Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects by Hermann von Helmholtz. Chapter 4, Part 1 On the Origin of the Planetary System. Lecture delivered in Heidelberg and in Cologne in 1871. It is my intention to bring a subject before you today which has been much discussed, that is, the hypothesis of Kant and Laplace as to the formation of the celestial bodies, and more especially of our planetary system. The choice of the subject needs no apology. In popular lectures, like the present, the hearers may reasonably expect from the lecturer that he shall bring before them well-ascertained facts and the complete results of investigation, and not unripe suppositions, hypotheses, or dreams. Of all the subjects to which the thought and imagination of man could turn, the question as to the origin of the world has, since remote antiquity, been the favorite arena of the wildest speculation. Beneficent and malignant deities, giants, Kronos who devours his children, Niflheim with the ice giant Ymir, who is killed by the celestial Asus, that out of him the world may be constructed, these are all figures which fill the cosmogonic systems of the more cultivated of the peoples. But the universality of the fact that each people develops its own cosmogonies, and sometimes in great detail, is an expression of the interest, felt by all, in knowing what is our own origin, what is the ultimate beginning of the things about us. And with the question of the beginning is closely connected that of the end of all things, for that which may be formed may also pass away. The question about the end of things is perhaps of greater practical interest than that of the beginning. Now I must premise that the theory which I intend to discuss today was first put forth by a man who was known as the most abstract of philosophical thinkers. The originator of transcendental idealism and of the categorical imperative, Immanuel Kant, the work in which he developed this, The General Natural Philosophy and Theory of the Heavens, is one of his first publications, having appeared in his thirty-first year. Looking at the writings of this first period of his scientific activity, which lasted to about his fortieth year, we find that they belong mostly to natural philosophy and are far in advance of their times with a number of the happiest ideas. His philosophical writings at this period are but few, and partly like his introductory lecture, directly originating in some adventitious circumstance. At the same time, the matter they contain is comparatively without originality, and they are only important from a destructive and partially sarcastic criticism. It cannot be denied that the Kant of early life was a natural philosopher by instinct and by inclination, and that probably only the power of external circumstances the want of the means necessary for independent scientific research, and the tone of thought prevalent at the time, kept him to philosophy, in which it was only much later that he produced anything original and important. For the critique de Reinen Vernunft appeared in his 57th year. Even in the later periods of his life, between his great philosophical works, he wrote occasional memoirs on natural philosophy and regularly delivered a course of lectures on physical geography. He was restricted in this to the scanty measure of knowledge and of appliances of his time, and of the out-of-the-way place where he lived. 
but with a large and intelligent mind he strove after such more general points of view as alexander von humboldt afterwards worked out it is exactly an inversion of the historical connection when kant's name is occasionally misused to recommend that natural philosophy shall lead the inductive method by which it has become great to revert to the windy speculations of a so-called deductive method no one would have attacked such a misuse more energetically and more incisively than kant himself if he were still among us the same hypothesis as to the origin of our planetary system was advanced a second time but apparently quite independently of kant by the most celebrated of french astronomers simon marquis de laplace it formed as it were the final conclusion of his work on the mechanism of our system executed with such gigantic industry and great mathematical acuteness you see from the names of these two men whom we meet as experienced and tried leaders in our course that in a view in which they both agree we have not to deal with a mere random guess but with a careful and well-considered attempt to deduce conclusions as to the unknown past from known conditions of the present time it is in the nature of the case that a hypothesis as to the origin of the world which we inhabit and which deals with things in the most distant past cannot be verified by direct observation it may however receive direct confirmation if in the progress of scientific knowledge new facts accrue to those already known and like them are explained on the hypothesis and particularly if survivals of the processes assumed to have taken place in the formation of the heavenly bodies can be proved to exist in the present such direct confirmations of various kinds have in fact been formed for the view we are about to discuss and have materially increased its probability partly this fact and partly the fact that the hypothesis in question has recently been mentioned in popular and scientific books in connection with philosophical ethical and theological questions have emboldened me to speak of it here i intend not so much to tell you anything substantially new in reference to it as to endeavor to give as connectedly as possible the reasons which have led to and have confirmed it these apologies which i must premise only apply to the fact that i treat a theme of this kind as a popular lecture science is not only entitled but is indeed beholden to make such an investigation for here it is a definite and important question the question namely as to the existence of limits to the validity of the laws of nature which rule all that now surrounds us the question whether they have always held in the past and whether they will always hold in the future or whether on the supposition of an everlasting uniformity of natural laws our conclusions from present circumstances as to the past and as to the future imperatively lead to an impossible state of things that is to the necessity of an infraction of natural laws of a beginning which could not have been due to processes known to us hence to begin such an investigation as to the possible or probable primeval history of our present world is considered as a question of science no idle speculation but a question as to the limits of its methods and as to the extent to which existing laws are valid it may perhaps appear rash that we restricted as we are in the circle of our observations in space by our position on this little earth which is but as a grain of dust in our milky way and limited in time by the short duration of the human race that we should attempt to apply the laws which we have deduced from the confined circle of facts open to us to the whole range of infinite space and of time from everlasting to everlasting 
but all our thought and our action, in the greatest as well as in the least, is based on our confidence in the unchangeable order of nature, and this confidence has hitherto been the more justified, the deeper we have penetrated into the interconnections of natural phenomena, and that the general laws which we have found also hold for the most distant vistas of space, has acquired strong actual confirmation during the past half-century. In the front rank of all, then, is the law of gravitation. The celestial bodies, as you all know, float and move in infinite space. Compared with the enormous distances between them, each of us is but as a grain of dust. The nearest fixed stars, viewed even under the most powerful magnification, have no visible diameter. And we may be sure that even our sun, looked at from the nearest fixed stars, would only appear as a single luminous point, seeing that the masses of those stars, insofar as they have been determined, have not been found to be materially different from that of the sun. But, notwithstanding these enormous distances, there is an invisible tie between them which connects them together and brings them in mutual interdependence. This is the force of gravitation with which all heavy masses attract each other. We know this force is gravity when it is operative between an earthly body and the mass of our earth. The force which causes a body to fall to the ground is none other than that which continually compels the moon to accompany the earth in its path round the sun, and which keeps the earth itself from fleeing off into space away from the sun. You may realize, by means of a simple mechanical model, the course of planetary motion. Fastened to the branch of a tree at a sufficient height, or to a rigid bar fixed horizontally in the wall, a silk cord, and at its end a small heavy body, for instance, a lead ball. If you allow this to hang at rest, it stretches the thread. This is the position of equilibrium of the ball. To indicate this and keep it visible, put in the place of the ball any other solid body, for instance, a large terrestrial globe on a stand. For this purpose, the ball must be pushed aside but it presses against the globe, and if taken away, it still tends to come back to it, because gravity impels it towards its position of equilibrium, which is in the center of the sphere. And upon whatever side it is drawn, the same thing always happens. This force, which drives the ball towards the globe, represents in our model the attraction which the Earth exerts on the moon, or the sun on the planets. After you have convinced yourselves of the accuracy of these facts, Try to give the ball, when it is a little away from the globe, a slight throw in a lateral direction. If you have accurately hit the strength of the throw, the small ball will move round the large one in a circular path and may retain this motion for some time, just as the moon persists in its course round the earth or the planets about the sun. Now, in our model, the circles described by the lead ball will be continually narrower because the opposing forces, the resistance of the air, the rigidity of the thread, friction, cannot be eliminated in this case as they are excluded in the planetary system. If the path about the attracting center is exactly circular, the attracting force always acts on the planets or on the lead sphere with equal strength. In this case, it is immaterial according to what law the force would increase or diminish at other distances from the center in which the moving body does not come. If the original impulse has not been of the right strength in both cases, the paths will not be circular, but elliptical. But these ellipses lie in both cases differently, as regards the attracting center, 
In our model, the attracting force is stronger the further the lead sphere is removed from its position of equilibrium. Under these circumstances, the ellipse of the path has such a position in reference to the attracting center that this is in the center of the ellipse. For planets, on the contrary, the attracting force is feebler the further it is removed from the attracting body, and this is the reason that an ellipse is described, one of whose foci lies in the center of attraction. The two foci are two points which lie symmetrically towards the ends of the ellipse and are characterized by the property that the sum of their distances is the same from any given points. Kepler had found that the paths of the planets are ellipses of this kind, and since the form and position of the orbit depend on the law according to which the magnitude of the attracting force alters, Newton could deduce from the form of the planetary orbits the well-known law of the force of gravitation, which attracts the planets to the sun, according to which this force decreases with increase of distance as the square of that distance. Terrestrial gravity must obey this law, and Newton had the wonderful self-denial to refrain from publishing his important discovery until it had acquired a direct confirmation. This followed from the observations that the force which attracts the moon towards the earth bears towards the gravity of a terrestrial body the ratio required by the above law. In the course of the 18th century, the power of mathematical analysis and the methods of astronomical observation increased so far that all the complicated actions which take place between all the planets and all their satellites, in consequence of the mutual action of each upon each, and which astronomers call disturbances, disturbance, that is to say, of the simpler elliptical motions about the sun, which each one would produce if the others were absent, that all these could be theoretically predicted from Newton's law and be accurately compared with what actually takes place in the heavens. The development of this theory of planetary motion in detail was, as has been said, the merit of Laplace. The agreement between this theory, which was developed from the simple law of gravitation, and the extremely complicated and manifold phenomena which follow therefrom, was so complete and so accurate as had never previously been attained in any other branch of human knowledge. Emboldened by this agreement, the next step was to conclude that where slight defects were still constantly found, unknown causes must be at work. Thus, from Bessel's calculation of the discrepancy between the actual and the calculated motion of Uranus, it was inferred that there must be another planet. The position of this planet was calculated by Leverrier and Adams, and thus Neptune, the most distant of all known at that time, was discovered. But it was not merely in the region of the attraction of our sun that the law of gravitation was found to hold. With regard to the fixed stars, it was found that double stars moved about each other in elliptical paths, and that therefore the same law of gravitation must hold for them as for our planetary system. The distance of some of them could be calculated. The nearest of them, A, in the constellation of the Centaur, is 270,000 times further from the Sun than the Earth. Light, which has a velocity of 186,000 miles a second, which traverses the distance from the Sun to the Earth in eight minutes, would take four years to travel from A Centauri to us. The more delicate methods of modern astronomy have made it possible to determine distances which light would take 35 years to traverse, as for instance the pole star, 
but the law of gravitation is seen to hold ruling the motion of the double stars at distances in the heavens which all the means we possess have hitherto utterly failed to measure the knowledge of the law of gravitation has here also led to the discovery of new bodies as in the case of neptune peters of altona found confirming therein a conjecture of bessel that sirius the most brilliant of the fixed stars moves in an elliptical path about an invisible centre this must have been due to an unseen companion and when the excellent and powerful telescope of the university of cambridge in the united states had been set up this was discovered it is not quite dark but its light is so feeble that it can only be seen by the most perfect instruments the mass of sirius is found to be thirteen point seven six and that of its satellite six point seven one times the mass of the sun their mutual distance is equal to thirty-seven times the radius of the earth's orbit and is therefore somewhat larger than the distance of neptune from the sun another fixed star procyon is in the same case as sirius but its satellite has not yet been discovered you thus see that in gravitation we have discovered a property common to all matter which is not confined to bodies in our system but extends as far in the celestial space as our means of observation have hitherto been able to penetrate but not merely is this universal property of all mass shared by the most distant celestial bodies as well as by terrestrial ones but spectrum analysis has taught us that a number of well-known terrestrial elements are met with in the atmospheres of the fixed stars and even of the nebulae you all know that a fine bright line of light seen through a glass prism appears as a colored band red and yellow at one edge blue and violet at the other and green in the middle such a colored image is called a spectrum the rainbow is such a one produced by the refraction of light though not exactly by a prism and it exhibits therefore the series of colors into which white sunlight can thus be decomposed the formation of the prismatic spectrum depends on the fact that the sun's light and that of most ignited bodies is made up of various kinds of light which appear of different colors to our eyes and the rays of which are separated from each other when refracted by a prism now if a solid or a liquid is heated to such an extent that it becomes incandescent the spectrum which its light gives is like the rainbow a broad colored band without any breaks with a well-known series of colors red yellow green blue and violet and in no wise characteristic of the nature of the body which emits the light the case is different if the light is emitted by an ignited gas or by an ignited vapor that is a substance vaporized by heat the spectrum of such a body consists then of one or more and sometimes even a great number of entirely distinct bright lines whose position and arrangement in the spectrum is characteristic for the substances of which the gas or vapor consists so that it can be ascertained by means of spectrum analysis what is the chemical constitution of the ignited gaseous body gaseous spectra of this kind are shown in the heavenly space by many nebulae for the most part they are spectra which show the bright line of ignited hydrogen and oxygen and along with it a line which as yet has never been again found in the spectrum of any terrestrial element apart from the proof of two well-known terrestrial elements this discovery was of the utmost importance 
since it furnished the first unmistakable proof that the cosmical nebulae are not, for the most part, small heaps of fine stars, but that the greater part of the light which they emit is really due to gaseous bodies. The gaseous spectra present a different appearance when the gas is in front of an ignited solid whose temperature is far higher than that of the gas. The observer sees then a continuous spectrum of a solid, but traversed by fine dark lines which are just visible in the places in which the gas alone, seen in front of a dark background, would show bright lines. The solar spectrum is of this kind and also that of a great number of fixed stars. The dark lines of the solar spectrum, originally discovered by Wollaston, were first investigated and measured by Fraunhofer, and are hence known as Fraunhofer's lines. Kirchhoff's investigation of this solar spectrum thus revealed the presence of iron, calcium, sodium, and lead. The solar atmosphere contains an abundance of the vapors of iron, which, by the way, justifies us in concluding what an enormously high temperature must prevail there. Spectral analysis also indicates the presence of hydrogen, zinc, copper, and of the metals of magnesia, alumina, barita, and other terrestrial elements. Lead, on the other hand, is wanting, as well as gold, silver, mercury, antimony, arsenic, and some others. The spectra of several fixed stars are similarly constituted. They show systems of fine lines which can be identified with those of terrestrial elements. In the atmosphere of Aldebaran and Taurus, there is, again, hydrogen, iron, magnesium, calcium, sodium, and also mercury, antimony, and bismuth. And according to H.C. Vogel, there is in A. Orionis the rare metal thallium, and so on. We cannot indeed say that we have explained all spectra. Many fixed stars exhibit peculiarly banded spectra, probably belonging to gases whose molecules have not been completely resolved into their atoms by the high temperature. In the spectrum of the sun, also, are many lines which we cannot identify with those of terrestrial elements. It is possible that they may be due to substances unknown to us. It is also possible that they are produced by the excessively high temperature of the sun, far transcending anything we can produce. But this is certain, that the known terrestrial substances are widely diffused in space, and especially nitrogen, which constitutes the greater part of our atmosphere, and hydrogen, an element in water, which indeed is formed by its combustion. Both have been found in the irresolvable nebulae, and, from the inalterability of their shape, these must be masses of enormous dimensions and at an enormous distance. For this reason, Sir W. Herschel considered that they did not belong to the system of our fixed stars, but were representatives of the manner in which other systems manifested themselves. Spectrum analysis has further taught us more about the sun, by which he is brought nearer to us, as it were, than could formerly have seemed possible. You know that the sun is an enormous sphere whose diameter is 112 times as great as that of the earth. We may consider what we see on its surface as a layer of incandescent vapor, which, to judge from the appearances of the sunspots, has a depth of about 500 miles. This layer of vapor, which is continually radiating heat on the outside and is certainly cooler than the inner masses of the sun, is, however, hotter than all our terrestrial flames. 
hotter even than the incandescent carbon points of the electrical arc, which represent the highest temperature attainable by terrestrial means. This can be deduced with certainty from Kirchhoff's law of the radiation of opaque bodies from the greater luminous intensity of the sun. The older assumption, that the sun is a dark, cool body, surrounded by a photosphere which only radiates heat and light externally, contains a physical impossibility. Outside the opaque photosphere, the sun appears surrounded by a layer of transparent gases which are hot enough to show in the spectrum bright-colored lines and are hence called the chromosphere. They show the bright lines of hydrogen, of sodium, of magnesium, and iron. In these layers of gas and of vapor about the sun, enormous storms occur, which are as much greater than those of our earth in extent and in velocity, as the sun is greater than the earth. Currents of ignited hydrogen burst out several thousands of miles high, like gigantic jets or tongues of flame, with clouds of smoke above them. These structures could formerly only be viewed at the time of a total eclipse of the sun, forming what were called the rose-red protuberances. End of section 8. Read by Verla Vieira, Las Cruces, New Mexico, USA, September 20th, 2021.